Good morning. Oh, that's nice and loud. That's what happens when you guess as to your volume. Uh, Before we begin this morning, I just want to make a clarification about an announcement that we made last week. And uh, I guess in my eagerness to, you know, want to connect, it sounded like we were making some things compete. And so I just want to clarify uh, if you log into Banff Park Church, well, not log in. If you go to BanffParkChurch.com for the service, uh, you will be able to kind of visit before and after and and connect through the chat feature. And we talked about a Zoom thing also, and and that was never meant to compete. That was meant to say that if, when we're all done everything at twelve o'clock, you would like to see a few people and chat for just a few minutes, that we wanted to make that option available. And so Bev Reimer has graciously uh, agreed to kind of oversee that. So over the next couple of weeks, from 12 o'clock to 12, kind of 20, 12.25, it will be available. So if you'd like to do that, then all you got to do is is give Bev a call, and she'll gladly send you the link for that, and then you guys can see each other face-to-face and chat for a little bit uh, afterwards. Um, Not, it's just something that we want to offer. Again, we're trying to figure out however we can connect people uh, in the most effective way we can. So it was never meant to compete, and it's not meant to be happening at the same time. So just clarifying that. All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5, and, and while you're flipping there, I'm just going to pray as we begin. God, this morning as we look at a very uh, difficult and sometimes very controversial text in Scripture, God, I pray that you as, as Lee mentioned, that you would orient us towards you this morning. Would we recognize that what is written in Scripture is inspired of you and has purpose and has meaning? And even if it's difficult, even if at first read we don't understand it, remind us that this is your word and it is true. So may we take the time that we need to now. Would you give me wisdom with how I try to present what is in this chapter And God, there's just so much importance for the the body of Christ, for the church as a whole, and for each individual church found in these verses. We pray that we would submit to you in all of these things. God, thank you for your word. Amen. As Lee has kind of mentioned, and uh, and I already just did as well, is is this is a a tough one this morning. And... uh, and not because it starts the way that it starts, though it starts quite shocking, uh, and we'll read it in a few minutes, and it, it might really surprise you at first glance what, uh, what is happening. Um, but while there's an issue that's happening, uh, there's lots of issues that we've been looking at, but while there's this new issue that exists in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's focus is actually more on the church, their failure in addressing this and, and his commands to how they address it, and, and what that looks like moving forward. And, and there's so much in this that we need to take to heart too. So real quick, the first four chapters have all been about divisions within the church for various reasons. Paul has dealt with those things. And now this new section starts here in chapter 5. And, and this is predominantly about sex, though this morning it's more about the church's response to a situation Uh, And then Paul takes a little bit of a detour into lawsuits and then back into sexual purity with marriages and so on, and and why lawsuits is in the middle of this kind of bookend on on sexual purity. 
I, I, I guess we'll find out in the coming weeks. It seems kind of strange. Uh, but then we'll move on to the next issue that is at hand. Now, there's only 13 verses in this chapter, but I would argue that this is maybe one of the most hard-hitting chapters in all of Scripture, uh, at least to us in our culture right now, because really what this is about is church discipline. And church discipline is a, is a complicated issue. Uh, it's one that many, or I should say, it's one that often people don't necessarily agree on. Some people think a situation should be handled with more directness, more harshly. Some people think it should be handled with more grace and more gentleness. Well, what we want to do this morning is we want to ignore both of those things because we want to handle it biblically. And we'll look into this, and I'm actually going to argue from the text here that we're going to see a lot of graciousness, even though it sounds quite harsh at first. And we're going to see that uh, the way that God has asked the church in Corinth to deal with this is no different than for us. Now, granted, this is a very serious situation. And so what I don't want you to hear is that this is, this is the formula moving forward for all conflict that happens within the church. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. And, and I'll continue to clarify that. But this is a very, very serious issue. So if you haven't read it before, this may, well, hopefully it does shock you with what is happening in there. And if you have read it before, undoubtedly you've gotten to kind of verse 5 and been like, what, what does this mean? Uh, and, then, and then also probably have gotten very uncomfortable with how much conflict is here. So let's, let's read this together. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as at present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you, not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person among you. Like that is, that's about as direct and harsh uh, a text that we really find in the New Testament. But let me just clarify something before we actually get into it. A reminder is, what is the church? Well, the church is meant to be a body of people that declare Jesus to the world. 
We seek to honor God. We seek to obey him. We seek to lift his name up so that he would receive glory and honor. And then we choose to make his name known to the world. And so we as a church, by definition, are meant to cast the light into this very, very, very dark world. We're meant to be different. We're called to stand out. The scriptures call it being holy. I think dealing with conflict is a way in which we can speak very loudly to the world, either positively or negatively, depending on how we deal with the situation. Now, maybe you don't like conflict. I don't like conflict. I don't like conflict a lot. Uh, in fact, as I was going through this passage specifically and, and thinking back on the, on the ministry years of my life, is I've probably unintentionally avoided conflict way too often. And honestly, I've probably intentionally avoided conflict too often. But when I look back, like I mentioned, my regret is never that I didn't deal with the situation, but rather that I didn't deal with it sooner. That I didn't deal with it in a more biblical way. Because what we have to remember, and we're going to talk about this more, is in in verse 6 and 7, Paul kind of says, these issues, they fester. And they poison not just the individual, but the church as a whole. So again, while Paul is going to say some things to this individual, most of this text is about the church, the church's failure to deal with it, and then his commands to how to actually deal with the situation. Now, I'm not saying that I had wished I was more harsh and more rude. Not at all. Uh, Rather, I wish I was more biblical. And I wish I was more biblical more quickly. And conflict is a funny thing, is, is we can either choose to be so direct and so harsh and be very critical and, and burn bridges and relationships, or on the other extreme, we can just pretend it's not there so we don't have to deal with it and hope that it goes away on its own. Neither of those are helpful. Neither of those work. And, and actually, the much more difficult thing is to find a balance in the middle where you want to deal with the conflict because you know it hurts the individual and it hurts the whole church as a whole. But you also love the person desperately and you want them to be restored into a right relationship with God. And so holding truth high while, while also being gracious and loving, I think that's actually what's difficult. Well, here Paul's going to show us, and, and again, this is a specific situation. This is a, a more severe situation But these things happen in our churches. These things happen in the body of Christ all over the world. And so we need some kind of a formula of when there is a serious issue like this, how how do we deal with it? What's the correct way to do it? Because the last thing that I want to do is do it of my own volition and my own accord. I want to follow what God teaches us. So let's start here. It says, it is actually reported there. So that's Paul's way of saying, I can't even believe that this is going on. Like, I can't even believe it. Now, now I'm going to jump ahead real quick, because in verse 9, it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So really easily, when we look at this, we see that Paul actually has written a letter before 1 Corinthians that, that we just aren't aware of. We don't have it today. And so Paul has told them already, and, and we'll get there in more detail when we get to verse 9, but Paul has already told them the church is, is not meant for sexual immorality. The church is meant for the Lord. The church is not meant to gratify your sexual appetites, but your spiritual hunger. This is what it's for. And so Paul says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and, and not even of a kind that's tolerated among pagans. 
a man has his father's wife. Now, while we're not 100% sure, commentators basically across the board uh, say that the way that Paul's used the language to express this here is that it's probably his stepmother. The father has probably died or is out of the picture, but he, this man, has now entered into a sexual relationship with uh, his stepmother. And there's a couple of things that are, that are really crazy about this, but first I want us to notice something. This is not as though this is a one-time situation. Some horrible, horrible decision in a moment of passion or, or some drunken mistake or something like that. The phrase here, he actually has, implicates this ongoing sexual relationship. Again, I'm going to clarify this later, but there's a vast difference between those two. Someone who does something that we deem as just a horrible act, but recognizes that and repents, that's very different than the situation that we have here. In fact, he says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He's saying the thing that is happening within your church is speaking to the world around you, and they don't dare do that, and they don't know the grace and the goodness of God. This ought not to be done. This you ought to mourn for. The argument here, and as you go through the text, and as you read through kind of the history and the commentators, Everyone says the issue here is that the Corinthians were, were elevating this, and they were proud of it. They were saying, look how gracious and how tolerant we are, that we can accept anybody doing everything. And the man specifically is also arrogant, parading it in front of the church saying, look at this. Paul's going to spend the rest of the time arguing, if that's what you think, you don't know the gospel. You've misunderstood the grace, the mercy, the love of Jesus, and you need to understand it from a correct realization of who Jesus is and what he was asking to do. Now again, he does say a very few things about the individual, but the rebuke in its, the whole of the rebuke is actually to the church. They should be in mourning over this. They should go to the individual and plead with them not to be doing what they're doing, but they're not doing that. I'm going to take just a real, uh, just a couple of minutes here to make a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I hope you'll understand why. In Romans 6, uh, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he answers, by no means. By no means. Is some twist the gospel of Jesus into some kind of a license to do whatever you want, whenever you want? Look at the, look at the freedom I have in Christ. They'll say that I'm not bound to these restrictions and regulations. But it's such a perversion and a twist of what God is for. If you remember in John, uh, Jesus heals a woman and then he says what to her? Go and sin no more. See, the freedom that we have in Christ is not this freedom from obeying what God has commanded us. It's the freedom from the reality that I no longer have to sacrifice every time I sin because one has come, that is Jesus, whose blood sacrificed once for all. All sin is now paid for. And the freedom that I now experience from that is, is I'm not obligated under this old covenant law to do these sacrifices over and over again. But there's nowhere in Scripture that says we're now not to follow what God has commanded. 
And we know this. Like, we don't just say, oh, I'm not under old covenant anymore, so I can go murder people now. That's okay. Like, we know that's wrong. We can't just be like, well, I'm allowed to go steal now because it doesn't matter. Like, I don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. Like, we know that's not right. The issue is, I am now free because it's not up to me to obey things in a certain way to somehow earn my own salvation. It is accomplished on the cross of Calvary that Jesus' blood covered and paid for my sins. And now I have the freedom to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. I no longer have to give in to the sinful nature that wages war against me because I also have a new nature, the Holy Spirit, and I can submit to him. Paul never argues about not obeying, not being obedient to God. He argues the opposite. Don't keep on sinning. He says in Romans 6, he continues on and he says, you died to sin, so how can you still live in it? We're supposed to radically change. But so many have twisted this. And and as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. How many people do that? Where they find, oh, well, this, uh, let me say it this way. Over the last number of years, I can't even tell you how many times I've received an email or a text message or something saying, you've got to hear this sermon by this person. This just changed my life. This is unbelievable. And you turn it on and you listen or you watch or whatever it is. And at the end of it, I'm shocked by just how horrible that person exegeted the text. They didn't look to what Scripture said. They looked to an idea that they had and then made the Scripture go along with that. And it's so clearly wrong. And this is what's happening in our culture over and over. And and what was happening in, in Corinthians where they were choosing certain teachers over others because obviously they're right, but everyone else is wrong. No, it's it's the Bible that's right. And we need to submit to that. Back to the text, Paul says, you, you need to get them out of the church. You need to remove them. This is harsh, right? You've got to excommunicate them. Now, I'll further clarify that. But, but he takes a little bit of a, a detour in verses 3 and 4, right? For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And if I were present, I've already, or, sorry, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Is it, really, this is just Paul's way of saying, look, I'm not there but I wish I was, and in spirit I am there, and I want you as a church when you come together to be courageous and to do the right thing. Leon Morris explains it this way. He says, the Corinthians have failed in their duty, but the apostle, his attitude is in sharp contrast. Those who were present and might have been expected to take action had done nothing, and yet he who was absent and might have pleaded distance as an excuse for inaction was taking strong. Paul's pleading with them. I'm with you in spirit. Do what is right. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm there with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is there, and then this is the difficult part. You are to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, just before we deal with the complicated verse 5, let me say this. Paul is not advocating that we just kick people out of the church when they struggle. And and actually, in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, we read about a situation where the church did follow through and cast someone out because of their sinfulness. And then Paul argues with them, saying he was actually repentant. 
And he's come in humility before you to say he was wrong, and he wants to be part of the church again, and you need to allow him back in because he has repented. He has come in humility. And so he corrects them first in 1 Corinthians 1 saying, look, you're not, you're not, dealing, you're not doing it correctly. And then also going, now you've gone overboard. So there's grace and there's mercy in Paul, but there's also a very seriousness to him saying, this has to be dealt with. And it has to be dealt with very directly. What does this mean you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? It's it's a very complicated thing. It's, It's very confusing at first read. 1 Timothy 1.20, if you remember, this is probably a year and a half ago when we went through 1 Timothy together, the same phrase occurs, only he says the reason for it this time is that that person may learn not to blaspheme. It's only two times in the New Testament it's written. And so as I was reading kind of several different interpretations for this, there were some that, that were really not really strong uh, in it, and then there was one that just stood out immensely from all the rest that just had a, just a, a much more con- convincing argument and led us back into the Old Testament, into Scripture for it. And if you remember, and I'm going to flip there just to read a couple of verses, but you don't have to this morning. But if you remember back to the book of Job, you see that in Job 2 verse 6, God hands Job over to Satan. It reads, so this is God speaking, Behold, he, that is Job, is in your hand, that's Satan. Only spare his life. And then so Satan takes the rest of, of those initial chapters to take everything away from Job and, and to try and make him recant, to try and make him turn his back on God. And, and if you remember the story, Job goes through a lot of different emotions, a lot of different difficulty, and, and, and pleads with God in the end, why have you done this? And, and calls out and says, God, show me and answer me to what this is. But this is how the book of Job ends. In chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. This is his response after all of this. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and speak, I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you, but, excuse me, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye has seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. At the very end of it, what does it do? Job repents of his own sinfulness, of his own part in it, even though Satan was the one attacking him taken everything away from him. He recognizes that his attitude and all of that was completely wrong, and he repents in dust and ashes. He actually is restored back to God. It seems pretty clear here to think of it in this regard, is that Paul thinks that Satan actually has a role to play with the destruction of our flesh. Paul thinks the man in this text, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, his his salvation is far more important to him than anything else, than everything else. Second Corinthians 12, 2, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh that he had, and he pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Now notice, it was a messenger from Satan sent to torment me. That's what he says. 
He pleads for it to be taken away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And as you read through that, you realize that Paul understands that it was given to him that he might not become arrogant. That he would stay humble. I was reading in Genesis the other day, and at the end of it, Joseph says these words to his brothers, and he's talking about his brothers sending him off into slavery in Egypt. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God can even take the most awful of intentions from Satan and turn it out for our deliverance. Isn't that the most amazing truth that could ever be? came across a sermon by John Piper on this text, and he entitles it, How Satan Saves the Soul. It's a bit of a provocative title, I'll agree. But he ends by saying this, Jesus, when we ask, sorry, Jesus will, when we ask, commission Satan to destroy the flesh of a person, if that's what it takes to get him back. And then he says, it would be as if nothing, if it yielded the salvation of his spirit. As I was reading and studying through what this might mean, that hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, it became so clear to me. Send him out into, send him out of the church and into the world, which is Satan's domain, so that he would learn how awful that domain is and how good and gracious God is. So that he will come to the end of himself and realize that God is far greater than any and everything the world has to offer. And Paul says, cast him out so that he would see the severity of what he's doing. And we haven't even talked about how it's affecting the church yet, which we're about to. But cast him out so that he would understand how serious this is. So that his flesh would be destroyed. So We might say it this way. So that he would hit rock bottom. And he would understand that God is the only one, the only thing worth it. That the world has nothing to offer that is better than God. He then goes into verse 6 and into kind of the church's context now. He says, your boasting is not good. Leon Morris again writes it this way. He says, it is also the case that by their boasting, the Corinthians were admitting evil into their own lives. In time, it would work through their whole being. Sin must be put away resolutely, or else in the end, the entire Christian life will be corrupted. When there's blatant, obvious, unrepentant sin amongst us, and we celebrate it, we are not celebrating the gospel. We are not lifting Jesus up. We're saying my own sexual appetite is far more important than my holiness, than what God has called me to do. It says something about leaven here, the old leaven and new leaven. Well, the NIV translates this as old yeast, which maybe makes more sense to us now Yeast didn't exist as far as we understand back then yet, and so it's maybe not the most accurate translation, but it is maybe a helpful one for us in our context to understand this. Frank Thielman writes, By analogy, when, pub- when publicly known sin in the church is not subjected to, tur- to church discipline, it will, spread si- it will silently spread its destructive consequences throughout the whole fellowship. Now, maybe when you were a kid, you can remember this, or maybe you, as a parent, or this is more familiar with. We tell kids, no, no, you probably shouldn't watch that show or that movie or listen to that kind of music. 
And why? Well, you know, as a kid, you think it's because your parents just don't want you to enjoy anything. As a parent, you realize that you're trying to protect your child from the world because it's a very dangerous and awful place. It can be very difficult. And what I think we can all relate to at some point is that the more that becomes normal around us, the more the shows that we watch and and the, the movies that we go to and the music that we listen to, the more the world infests our thought process, the more desensitized we become to it until these things become totally normal. Just just look at the sexual immorality in our culture and how normal it is. Like you can't even rent a movie without wanting to turn it off halfway through because of something that happens. I shouldn't say that. There are some, right? But the vast majority of them are just filled with all kinds of just wickedness. And it's so easy to turn a blind eye, and it's so easy for us to slowly become desensitized to it so that we get to this place where we're like, oh, it's not that big a deal. Or that was, this is a term that I probably have used way too often in my life. That was relatively clean. Relative to what? Not relative to 30 years ago. Right? Like we're becoming so desensitized as a culture. And Paul's saying you have to deal with the sin that enters into the body because it will slowly infect you and it will be so slow and you'll be so desensitized you won't even realize that it's there until you're not serving Jesus. You're serving yourself. And Paul mentions verse 9, which I referenced already, this, this previous letter that he had written. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he has to make this caveat and this clarification, right? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. It's so, I wondered why the need for this caveat. And as I uh, studied, almost all commentators said it this way. People were trying to discredit Paul by suggesting that in his letter, he says to avoid all people who are not Christians. Does that make any sense to you from any kind of a logical way? Is literally Paul's whole life has been about what? Preaching the gospel to those who don't know and trying to band them together to plant churches so that they might reach out to the community so that others might come into the saving faith of Jesus. makes no sense that he would say that. Avoid everyone. You'd have to avoid everyone. Well, that doesn't make sense. So here's my takeaway from this verse. People really just look for reasons to discredit someone that they don't agree with. But they don't consider their own logic, and they don't consider how often their own logic condemns them. Their heart becomes so hard that they cannot see the obvious contradiction that's right in front of them. So often that's the case. We, as Christians, we, as the church, we understand that our role is to go and to declare Jesus to the nations. And we know that we're going to have to surround ourselves with people who think differently than us. And we can't hold them to some kind of a, a, a standard given by Jesus when they don't even believe that Jesus is who Jesus claimed he was. That's why it says Jesus went to eat with sinners and tax collectors. And he, and he said, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick. Paul's clarification is because he's saying, look, But now I'm writing this to you, verse 11, that you would not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality, greed, idolatry, reviler, drunkard, swindler. He's making a clarification. He's saying anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and yet lives this way, they are not representing Christ. And they're going to do so much damage to your church and to the reputation of Christ in your community. And you need to not associate with them. He says you need to not even eat with such a one. 
Now, let me just clarify this again just a little bit here. In Jonathan Lehman's book, Church Membership, he talks about how when a church welcomes someone into membership, they're making a type of covenant together. The church is saying that they recognize this person as one whose life shows that they're following after Jesus Christ. Certainly not perfectly, but they're moving in that direction. They're maturing. They're trying to become more like Jesus. They're trying to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit. And on the other side, when a person makes a commitment to serving the local church, they're doing it because they say, I'm going to use the gifts and the abilities that God has given me for the edification, the upbuilding of the church, so that the church would be strengthened and so that we would be able to reach the community more effectively as a group than as an individual. So Jonathan Lehman argues that when someone enters some kind of a, a arrogant unrepentant kind of a sin where they start to boast in saying, look, I can do whatever I want. Jesus died on the cross for me, so I can just go about and live however I want. He says the church needs to step up and terminate that membership because they can no longer in good faith say that that person is a representative of Jesus anymore. Now again, it's meant to be a wake-up call. It's not meant to be a kick to the curb and say we want nothing to do with you again. And 2 Corinthians 2 shows that. The idea here is that we would be reminded that we cannot live in sin. We've died to sin. And most conflict within the church and most discipline within the church should be as simple as confronting someone and saying, look, you said this or you did this, and this isn't in keeping with what you say about who you are in Christ. And that person should say, yes, you're right, I'm sorry, and repent, and that's it. Done. Dealt with. Even serious, serious uh, things like, like at the beginning of this text, if it had said, this man did this one thing, he should be confronted. And if he's unwilling to admit, then the elders of the church, according to Matthew 18, should go and confront them. And if he repents of that, then great, that relationship is restored. The goal is not to kick people out of the church. The goal is that each Christian would grow in their faith, grow in their maturity. And if they're not willing to be subjected to what Scripture says and to what God has called us to do, then it gets very uncomfortable. And we have to go to people and we say, look, you are not representing Christ. And if you are going to live this way and if you are going to be unrepentant and you are going to refuse to humble yourself before the cross of Christ, then you are not welcome here until you figure this out. Again, that sounds so harsh, but what's, what's the goal? The goal is that when that person leaves the church and is no longer part of that fellowship, that they will start to realize how much they are missing because the world has nothing to offer compared to it. And I think more now than ever, those of us and, and those of you who are here specifically, you probably are feeling, well, maybe not today because this probably sounds like a big lecture from me, and I apologize for that. But most of the time when we do gather together, we're encouraged and we're so thankful. And many of you have emailed me and said, I just can't wait to be back together because there's nothing like it. Because we love each other. and We care for each other. We want to build each other up. and We want to serve for one purpose, that Jesus' name would be exalted, that others would come to faith in him. I, I said it earlier, but the goal of the church's life is, is maturity. It's not to gratify our own sexual desires. It's not to gratify our, our own covetousness. It's not to gratify, gratify our own sinful desires of any kind. It's meant to actually weed those things out of our life. 
So the goal is when somebody is cast out that they would recognize just how serious this is. That they would repent of what they've done. That they would come back and they would in humility say, I know this was wrong and I confess this. And then we can welcome them back in and say, look, God has forgiven you of these things. But there's consequences. There's responsibilities. There's things that that need to happen. Right? And so in, in one sense, if someone like this person in 1 Corinthians 5, if he does repent, well, he's probably not just brought right back into leadership in some place. There's consequences. He has to show that he has learned from those, those very serious sins and that he has changed. And how do we prove that we've changed? That takes time. And so the goal needs to be we want to welcome you back into fellowship so that you can get into a right relationship with Jesus. Simply put, Paul's far more concerned about the person's salvation than his feelings. And in our culture, maybe that is very countercultural. We're so concerned with how someone feels. And we should be concerned with how they feel at some level, but not at the expense of the truth. Not at the expense of saying, look, This is what God has called of you. This is what he has said. It is plain in his word. You must abide by this. Now again, this is a severe, severe situation. All of us are going to need to be corrected at times. All of us are going to fall in various ways. And all of us probably have unique things in our life where that certain sin, that certain behavior, that's got a little bit more tight grip on us than some of these other ones. So sometimes it can be very easy to look at someone else and go, man, I can't believe they struggle with that. Why would they struggle with that? Well, flip it on us, and it could, they could probably say the same thing about us. Is All of our life is about maturing and growing, and we need others to call us into that. And that's what the church is. That's why Paul says, I have nothing to do with judging outsiders. It is those inside the church whom you are to judge. You were to call each other to a higher standard so that you would be that city on a hill so that the light of Christ would shine in the community and people would see it and go, I need that. That's not about us being perfect. It's about us loving and caring. The logic is just so obvious. You as a parent, you discipline your child not because you just want them to do it your way, but because you know that certain behaviors, certain attitudes, that will cause far greater issues down the road. And you're trying to show them what it means to be a mature person in the world that they find themselves in and and be responsible and be kind and, and all these things. And so we discipline for it. It's the same thing that's happening here. As God is saying, you need to put me first. Your, your sexual desires and everything else that comes with it, all those things should be subjected to the lordship of Christ. And if it does not honor God, then it is not of God. And it should be dealt with accordingly. So now let me just say this, right? Is This is not, okay, we've read through this text, and now we're going to go search out every skeleton that you have in your closet and then, and then kick you out so that you can see the severity. But that's not at all what we're saying. Not at all. It's interesting to me that this kind of severity only happens a very few times in the New Testament. Because it's, it's talking about a very serious thing. We as a church want to be so gracious and so loving and so patient in each one's spiritual life and, and in their growth and in their maturity. But when somebody says, I am a Christian and I love Jesus, but then lives completely opposite of that, we will have to say, look, you have said this. 
You want to be a follower of Jesus. You want to honor God, and yet you're doing something that doesn't. Will you confess that and move back into alignment with what is true and what is right? And if they do, then great. We'll, we'll still have to, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with each situation uniquely, uh, depending on the issue. But if somebody is in this situation, Paul says, for the betterment of the entire church, you do the right thing. You make sure he understands he cannot be part of the fellowship of the Lord and live this way. Why? So that he would be cast to the world for the destruction of his flesh so that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. I hope that's clear. Uh, I, I don't want to berate this any longer. I had much more written down, much more I could say, but, but I trust and, and hope. And it's been nice to have a few people here that I can actually see their little eyeballs and, and know if the, you're with me because otherwise I tend to preach way too long when it's just the camera. But I just hope and pray that as we consider these things that we wouldn't just see it, oh man, Paul's just being ridiculous. But we would see that Paul's elevating the holiness of the church because the church is meant to be God's vehicle to reach the nations. And it's so important. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And, and even in these very difficult texts that are harsh and very direct and, and sometimes make us very uncomfortable, I pray that we would understand why these texts are here. God, if we have declared Jesus Christ as our Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, hold us and guide us and direct us so that we would live in a way that we mature in our spiritual faith? God, help us to never to be harsh just for harshness sakes. Help us to hold truth high and also be gracious and loving. And sometimes remind us that even being very direct and seemingly harsh sometimes can actually be the most gracious thing. So would you be at work in our motives for, for why we do what we do? Would we be humble enough that when a brother or sister in the Lord comes to us and and tries to help us see the error of our ways, would we look to Scripture to see, is there truth in this? Am I doing something or living a way that is not honoring you? And if that's true, God, would you give us the courage we need to let go of ourselves and to follow you? God, thank you for this church. Thank you for those who are involved in it. Thank you that we are one family one main purpose to exalt Jesus and to make him known. Would you give us the strength to do that? And would we love each other in a very biblical way as a church? Go with us this week. Amen.